0: You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. Morning. morning. I'm Doug, and I'm a Methodist. (laughs) Hi, Doug. This is a safe space, Doug. (laughs) Uh, I had an insight when I was getting ready for this sermon, and hopefully more than one insight, but, uh, and I know this, it borders on extreme overgeneralization, but I think it's fairly certain that in my 35 years as a, as a minister or a preacher that I'm al- I almost always, I've always preached to people who are older than me. That was, that was for sure when I was a young pastor, and I know that changed as I got older, but I think since I was also since I was a pastor in a mainline denomination, I usually was preaching to people who were older than me because most mainline churches, uh, their average age is on the older side. Well, things have changed. Now I'm older. And uh, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but if you go to a website that asks for your age, they'll always have a breakdown of ages. There's like four or five categories uh, leading up to age 65. And then... One more, 65 and over. <laughs> what's with that? That's, that's disconcerting. But anyway, I also uh, realized that when I have an opportunity to preach here at Common Ground, that I'm generally preaching to people who are younger than me. And as I thought about that, I realized that that puts me in a good position to preach from Second Timothy, because that's what's going on here in Second Timothy, an older man is sharing wisdom or insight or encouragement with the younger man, his, uh, his student. Most scholars agree that this is Paul's last letter. As uh, Nick mentioned, when he started this series, Paul is looking at his trial and his death. He's in prison. And although Paul hopes that Timothy is going to come and visit with him soon and bring with him his coat and some other things, Paul, in, some, in many ways, is sharing his final words as a mentor to a student. So I find myself, a person in ministry for many years, sharing words of advice, hopefully maybe some wisdom, to pre- people who are just beginning to work out their own calling into ministry in whatever form that might be. Uh, the focus of the, the the portion of Paul's letter to second letter to Timothy today is is, is words. And uh, before we get into that, I want to ask you some questions. How many of you have been part of or have overlist overheard a stupid argument recently? Anybody want to share the stupid argument? No. Can I share? So we were in the cafeteria, right? And a couple buddies of, of mine were arguing what was the definition of <laughs> okay. um, a slender shot? Okay. Joy? A good friend of mine, um, Ben Schaefer, was arguing that patches. Oh, was what? That that what? Was <laughs> me oh. That's <laughs> bio, bio. Oh. Or that's, that's I don't want to have one to contribute. I just want to say I appreciate all the married couples just immediately putting your hand down when the ask for an example. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, have been a part of some. I, I won't mention any names. There's some middle school students I had in my uh, car not too long ago. Two of, them, two, two, of, two of them I know very well. And these three uh, young gentlemen were, were uh, arguing about which of them was the smartest. <laughs> well, we've all been there. We've all, we've all heard it. How many have ever been in an argument over theology? Okay, How many have ever tried to argue someone into accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? <laughs> right, it doesn't work very well. Let's play together. Lord, now I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You are our strength and you are our redeemer. Amen. I was not taught how to argue or debate. My parents never argued with one another in front of my brother or me. Instead, uh, their their approach was the silent treatment. Anybody have parents like that? <laughs> it's not comfortable. Well, directly or indirectly, I learned that arguing was wrong and that I should stay away from it. But, but as strange as that sounds, it all changed when I became a Christian. I finally had something worth arguing about. And I began to read the Bible. And because I was reading the Bible, because I was paying attention to Christian speakers via cassette tape, yeah. I, I determined that I knew a lot, whole lot more about Jesus and the Christian faith than most of my peers. I was involved in a street ministry in Mandan, North Dakota, Called the Maranatha Coffee House. Most of us were high school, college age students. Most of us were all new Christians. And we were very, very passionate. We had our regulars, but we also had a lot of walk-ins from off the street, curious about what was happening. And one thing that helped a lot with that is because of our name, Maranatha Coffee House. I don't know if you know that term Maranatha, but it's an Aramaic phrase that's found in, in 1 uh, Corinthians. It means the Lord comes, and uh, fortunately, this is during the, the hippie days, of the late '60s, early '70s, and Maranatha sounded enough like marijuana <laughs> that uh, we had a lot of people come in who were curious about what was going on in our coffee house. <laughs> we also had plenty of intoxicated walk-ins because we were if you've ever been to Mandan, there's a lot of bars in Mandan. <clears throat> now, whoever they might be. We were, we were determined that whoever came into our coffee house on this particular night would leave that night as a follower of Jesus. And I can remember many late and frustrating nights going home after we had tried to argue someone into becoming a follower of Jesus. And then I got to seminary. At the time... Uh, it was made up mostly of, uh, of of young men who felt called into the local church ministry. And uh, during my first year, I was I was single. I was living in a dorm, so testosterone-laden theological arguments were a daily occurrence. <laughs> Although Asbury Seminary was a Wesleyan seminary. The student body was incredibly diverse. Again, this, this is the Jesus Revolution days and people were, young people were getting saved all over the place. So we had Calvinists, we had Arminians, we had Charismatics, we had Sensationists, we had Fundamentalists, we had Closet Liberals. And all of us were right. <laughs> and so we had some pretty serious arguments. I began local church ministry in 1978. And one of the first things I learned was that church arguments are often the worst and the most stupid. Because of ridiculous arguments, churches have split. People have left the church. Many no longer participate in church because of their hurt and their disappointment over stupid church arguments. I could give you a lot of examples. This probably isn't the best one, but I can still remember... Being at a trustees meeting, uh, trustees are people who take care of the buildings and stuff like that. And we were arguing about or discussing what kind of siding to put on the parsonage. You know what a parsonage is? It's where the pastor lives. Whether we should have vinyl siding or steel siding. And the argument or the conversation turned into argument, got more heated and more heated. One of the gentlemen was on the losing side, it appeared. He finally, in a huff, got up and started walking out the door, and I yelled, Tilmer, you can't leave the meeting. And he looked around like, why not? I said, you're in charge of this meeting. Well, he came back, and we settled the issue. I think we got steel siding. And just uh, is just one of the many, many stupid church arguments that I had to deal with. More seriously, our theological church arguments. The church has been fractured into hundreds of pieces because of disagreement over thought, theology and practices of faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ have been murdered spiritually and physically by other brothers and sisters in Christ over those differences. This happens so often that we're used to it. In some ways, we have adjusted to it. At least now, because of all the splits, we have a smorgasbord of churches we can choose between when we're church shopping. Let's turn to our scripture. We're second Timothy today, second chapter. We're starting with verse 14. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Now we're going to skip over some verses here. And... Uh, <clears throat> We just don't have time to look at all this, but I I hope that you'll see some of it worked in uh, to the sermon later. We're going to go down to verse 22. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. this is not the first time that Paul talks about foolish words with Timothy. In his first letter which he wrote uh, just a couple or a few years earlier he wrote things like this. This is Timothy uh, 1 verses uh, 3 and 4 it says, Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. And then in that first letter in chapter 6, verse 3, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ into godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind. Why is this so important to Paul? Of all the things he could talk about in his final words as a mentor to a student, why does he spend so much time talking about foolish arguments? Although the timeline is uncertain, many believe that Paul had his Damascus road experience when he was about 30 years old and that he wrote this letter some 30 years later as he came to the end of his ministry. I believe that Paul's need to argue, his participation in arguing, and his selectivity of what was worth arguing about had changed over those 30 years. It's a typical experience as we age and mature spiritually we tend not to be as argumentative we tend to be more selective about what we argue about we don't take ourselves as seriously as we did when we were when we were younger i know there's exceptions to that in fact i know some exceptions to that but i think it's fairly safe generalization if you don't believe it on monday mornings we have old man's coffee I won't. Well, at uh, I won't tell you where it's at because we really don't want you to come. But <laughs> anyway, as a bunch of old, old guys, most of us are from the church. If you came and sat down with us, we never argue. We complain a lot, but we never argue. We're smart enough to know that if we did start arguing, it would not go in a good place. Thirty years of ministry, Paul has also seen the damage that foolish and wrong-headed arguments have done to the church, drawing people away from Jesus Christ, taking people away from the real gospel. And he uses very strong language in uh, in our scripture reading today. Depending on the version, we hear such phrases as wrangling over words, word fights, godless chatter. Profane chatter. Stupid and senseless controversies. Paul says that such behavior is serious. It ruins the lives of those who listen to it. Those who indulge in it become more and more ungodly. It even destroys people's faith. It is so dangerous that Paul compares it to spreading gangrene. Paul, it's not negotiable. The church was in its infancy. For the church to be split up into factions would be the death of the early church. Now, of course, that didn't stop people from trying. You might remember Peter or Paul had to deal with the, the Corinthians about their, their dividing up over Paul and Peter and and, uh, and Jesus and Apollos. He was constantly being argued with by, by idol worshippers. Idol worshippers, and worst of all, fellow Jews, his own fellow Jews who in their own interpretation of Scripture, tried to undermine Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. So what does Paul have to teach us about arguing effectively? Simply, don't. Don't argue. He almost sounds a little weak-kneed about it. Look at some of the ver- look at uh, verses 25 and 26 that we read. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone. Kind? What fun is being kind? And to everyone? I mean, there's some people that I just do not like being kind to. Paul says, be kind to everyone. Opponents must be gently instructed. A central verse to all of this that we're talking about today is verse 15. Paul says to Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. The question for us is how is Timothy? How are we supposed to correctly handle the word of truth? It starts with present yourself to God. It starts with humility. It starts with fear. It starts the recognition that the only audience we should worry about as we speak is God. God is the one who will hold each one of us accountable for the words that we speak. Here's some uh, advice from an old guy. Be cautious of people who say, And for, please don't be one of these people who says, God told me to tell you. Or, a person with their own interpretation of Scripture says, God said it, and that settles it. When we talk like that, we are treading on taking the name of the Lord your God in vain ground. Jesus, God in the flesh, God fully revealed. I mean, this is, this is ironic. God in the flesh was continually being confronted by people who wanted to tell him what God was saying through the scriptures. One of Jesus' mantras was, you have heard it said, but I say to you, Time and time again, Jesus revealed that his people were missing the point in what they believed to be the words of God. Again, Paul says, correctly handle the word of truth. And words are powerful. Words can bring life. And words can bring death. James writes in his letter, in uh, chapter 3, verse 7, Listen to what Jesus says about that. This is in Matthew 12, verse 33. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Another way of saying handle the word of of truth correctly is make sure that you cut straight. It's a great biblical image. might remember from Hebrews where he writes, For the word of the God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's Hebrews 4.12. That brings us to a major point there is a huge, huge difference between the words of God and the Word of God with a capital W. We have all kinds of words that tell us about the character of God and the actions of God. We have the scriptures, we have commentaries, we have books upon books. But when God wanted to make a full revelation of himself, He came in the flesh and he lived among us. Our main focus, our main focus must not be on the words about God, but on the Word of God with a capital W. Jesus is a living and active Word of God. If we want to learn how to rightly handle the word of truth, we need to see how Jesus, the word of truth, handled God's words. In spite of all that Jesus knew, he was not a wordy person. If he was, our Bible would be a whole lot bigger. He didn't teach doctrine. He did not teach theology, but he told stories and he healed and he forgave. And when asked to deliver a theological dissertation on the greatest commandments that God had given, he very simply and shortly said, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself." Last week, Justin mentioned that that the, the important things that Jesus taught were often vague and nebulous, and that's what Jesus intended. The Word of Truth wants us to humbly trust Him to help us rightly handle the Word of Truth, which is Himself. The doctrines and apologetics and the systemization of theology, they all have their place. It's so important to remember that every time we try to define truth with our words, we put God in a box. We put the truth in a in chains there's no way we can get around it it's Just that's just the way life is but we need to stay in a safe place by realizing that Jesus stands above it all this even applies to the words of the Bible now we had, when we were doing the, the prophets, minor prophets we used the, the, the videos from the Bible Project, how many have looked at the Bible Project website or Listen to their podcasts. In all my years of ministry, I think it's 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 one of the the best uh, approaches to the Bible that I've ever been a part of. And because and it's because their what are their what their goal is. Their goal is to help people experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. Jesus stands above it all. And Jesus defines it all. The correct, the correct handling of the words is not developed from the outside. It might help, but going to seminary will not guarantee the correct handling of the Word of God. It might help going to Bible studies, but it will not guarantee a correct handling of the Word. Knowing Hebrew and Greek will not guarantee a correct handling of the word. And I can still remember my first morning in in, uh, Greek 101 when I went to seminary. I was so excited to take Greek. I thought for sure that once I learned Greek, I would have the answer to every question raised in the New Testament. Dr. Lyon knew that most of his students were just like me. So he began the course by having us look at some particular, very central words in the New Testament. And he had the audacity to say, we really don't know what these words mean. (laughs) They have roots in other languages, and we just haven't figured it out for sure. And then he went on, students... Just because you'll be learning Greek, you will not know it all. You need to learn and use Greek with humility and wonder, not with arrogance and superiority. Rightly handling the word of truth is not conformity to words about God. It's conformity to Jesus Christ. We need to get our attention off of words and focus on the Word. Our words are not going to change people's lives, but the Word will. It's a huge temptation for us as preachers. I've always taken the words that I speak from the pulpit very seriously, but there was a transition in my understanding as the years went on of what that meant. I used to believe that was my words that we're going to change people. And I get very frustrated and feel really bad when I didn't see that happening, like it was my fault somehow. I came to realize that while my words are very important, what is most important is that while the words are coming out of my mouth, the Word of God, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, is doing His thing. The living word of God. Only the living word of God is what gets deep into men and women's souls, and transforms them. Now, as a district superintendent, uh, we had we had uh, bishops and district superintendents in the Methodist tradition, and uh, we'd come back after being out looking after our churches, and we talk about some of the arguments that are taking place, and. Some of the things that we were trying to, to share with people and get them to, to, to realize and, and uh, the bishop would always say, what reason has not put in someone's heart, reason will not take out. You know, There's some deep things in the hearts of men and women that come from all different kinds of places. And sometimes we are foolish enough to think that our words are going to get them out of their funk or get them on the right road, or get them to realize what's really true. Our words cannot do that. We cannot reason people into changing. Only the Spirit of God can transform people. When it comes to one's elocution and or abilities of debate, one might be extremely talented. A gold or silver household article or extremely poor, a clay or wooden household article. This is in the scripture that we skipped this morning. But if you present yourself for use for the highest purposes, you take into mind the fact that it's our words, but the word that does the work. Then we'll be most useful to our master, Jesus. You know, Paul never considered himself to be a good communicator, he wrote to the Corinthians in the second chapter, verse 1. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. In verse 22 of our scripture today, Paul says to the young Timothy, Flee the evil desires of youth. Now whenever I heard those words before, I always thought it had to do with youthful hormones and all that goes along with it. But that wouldn't be fair to Paul in his context. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the tendency when we are younger to always be right. To prove ourselves. To outdo one another. Instead, Paul encourages this young man to pursue what is right in the eyes of God. Faith, love, peace, and purity in heart. Let me share another couple thoughts of, of, a, of an old man concerning arguing effectively. Number one, don't let words define you. Let the word define you. And number two, live your faith. Don't argue your faith. How many of you have you seen the movie Force Gump? I just watched it this past week. I haven't seen it for for many, many years. In the spirit of Forrest Gump, that's all I've got to say about that. (laughs) Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you so much that you've entrusted yourself to us. Forgive us for the many, many times that somehow we feel that it all depends on us. That it's our words that are going to change the world. That it's our arguments that are going to make the difference. And all the time we ignore the fact that it is only your word, your word in the flesh, that's going to change this world. We give ourselves to you again as young and old and ask that you'd help us to learn how to handle the word of truth correctly. Amen Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.